This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. We'll be taking a short break in our series through the book of Ruth. As many of you know and have been praying for me, I'm very thankful for that. I am candidating in the United Reformed Churches. My exam is on September 21st, and one of the passages that's been assigned to me for my examination is John 3, verses 16 through 18. So I'll invite you to turn to John 3, and we'll read God's Word under the heading of God's costly and sacrificial love in redemption. That is God's costly and sacrificial love in redemption from John 3, verses 16 and 18. The Word of God reads this morning, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here ends the reading of God's holy word, and may his blessing be upon it. Dear congregation, this morning I want to begin with a question, a question that has been asked by the churches throughout all the ages. What is man that God is mindful of him? It is the history of our species, the human people, that God took the dust of the earth in creation and breathing life into His nostrils, created a living being called man. Mankind is part of God's free act of creation. Man is said to be made in the image of God so that they might serve God and glorify their Creator. But as we know, at the instigation of the devil and the willful disobedience of our forefathers, we rebelled against God. That is, that created rejected the Creator. And from that moment on, We, man, people, have been at war with God Almighty. You know, our Gospel writer, John, the beloved disciple, is in fact well aware of this hostility between us and God. If you flip one chapter over to John chapter 1, in the prologue that is in the opening of his Gospel, He tells us that the world, meaning Jew and Gentile alike, verse 9, is covered in darkness. That is, they're shrouded, they're blinded by their sins in verse 10. And God's response to this fallenness of the world is that He sends His only begotten Son. But what is the world's response to this Son? to this Messiah. Verse 5 of chapter 1, the darkness did not comprehend. Verse 11, His own did not receive Him. Beloved, the effects of the fall 
meant that they could not receive Him. But the jewel of the New Testament is that God's response to the fallen and wicked status of His creation is love. God so loved the world. The Bible tells us we are the ones at fault. But John 3.16 tells us that if we look into the heart of God, we will not find a God who is cold and austere. Who is abrasive and off-putting. But when we look into the heart of God, we find a God who is gracious. A God who is kind. A God who loves His people. And that's our theme this morning, is that God loves the world with a selfless and costly love. I want you to see this in three points with me this morning. The unseen motive in verse 16. We want to also see the Son's mission in verse 17. And then the individual's response in verse 18. So that's the unseen motive, the Son's mission, and the individual's response. But first, we want to give our attention to that most famous of passages, verse 16, and we want to see God's unseen motive. You see, in John chapter 3, Jesus is moving from a public dispute in John chapter 2 with the temple authorities where He makes a whip and He drives out the vendors from the temple of God. But in John chapter 3, we move to a private nighttime setting with one of those religious leaders named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him privately asking him questions and Jesus says to him in verses 3 and 4 that Nicodemus needs to be born again. Jesus tells him also in verses 5 and 10 that he needs to be born of water and spirit, which this isn't our passage of focus this morning, but essentially means he needs to be renewed. Nicodemus needs to be cleansed. He needed a new nature to which Nicodemus throws up his hands in verse 9 and says, how can this be? How can I be born again? How can I be cleansed? How can I receive a new nature? And Jesus' response is He points Nicodemus to the cross. Verse 14, Just as God graciously provided a means of new life and cleansing in the wilderness, so does He provide new birth, a new nature, and cleansing in the cross of Christ. Just a technical note here this morning. I do think it's wise that the ESV puts quotation marks at the beginning of verse 16 indicating that this is a new dialogue because this seems to be the end of Jesus' speech to Nicodemus in verses 14 and 15. And John, the narrator of this Gospel, begins to interpret God's actions. He begins to interpret what Jesus said. And look at what He says this morning. The motivation for the cross. God's unseen motive. Martin Luther said that John 3.16 is the Gospel in miniature. 
It is the most widely known and widely quoted verse, yet the most overlooked word in this verse is that first word, for God so loved the world. Connecting it to the preceding, verses 14 and 15. That is, the Son of Man lifted up. Why does the Son of Man need to be executed? Notice the motivation. Jesus' death is necessary because God loved us. Love is such a loaded word, isn't it, congregation? Think of what this word does to us when we hear it. Maybe the first time your spouse spoke these words to you and your heart exploded out of your chest. Or as you held that little baby and you spoke these words to them. Think, congregation, of maybe a time where a time of great sadness or sorrow and the comfort that hearing I love you brings to you. The Bible, God all throughout the Bible, I should say, has said to His church, I love you. In the Old Testament, the most frequent noun for love is chesed, referring to God's loyal love. According to God's loyal love, He protects and sustains life. According to God's loyal love, He relents from His wrath and offers forgiveness. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic Covenant, He is described as slow to anger and great in chesed. He is great in His love. His love is enduring and eternal. And as John is picking up on this theme in verse 16, he is picking up on that theme of selfless, enduring, eternal love for the world. That is that the unseen motive for our salvation is God's love for us. To love means to have a feeling of deep affection for someone else. Put it another way, God has a deep affection for you, dear Christian. But love must always be accompanied by action. I ask the question to you this morning, how do you know that someone loves you? Talk is cheap. Just because someone says they love you is probably not the main reason you know that you're loved, right? Spouses might say to one another, I know that I'm loved because I'm married, we live together, we have children together, etc. Children might know they are loved because their parents give them gifts, spend time with them. Friends might know that they are loved because you invest time and effort and interest into them. My point is this, is that to know you're loved requires a demonstration of love. Likewise, the church can be confident in God's love. Not only because God says to the church, I love you, but because of the demonstration of His love. 
And His demonstration of love is so much better than time or money or the latest video game console or beauty products or popularity. John 3.16 says God gave the gift of His own beloved Son. And He has set His love, He has sent His Son to the world. I think Abraham Kuyper is right when he says that the world needs to be understood not as one particular person. But God has set His love upon people from all tribes, all nations, all tongues and peoples. Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Even though the world is sin-darkened and unresponsive to God's truth, God's response is love. And His love is sacrificial. We are often astounded by romantic or familial love, aren't we? That's why romance movies do so well in the theaters, right? We love love stories that are full of self-denial. That are full of sacrifice. Look at what the Scriptures say. God gave His only begotten Son. That is the Son that He was well pleased with. We could become so familiar with the passage that we forget its significance. I know that you've all heard this passage hundreds of hundreds, if not thousands of times on billboards and movie screens and football players' eye blacks and whatever it else might be. But just pause and consider that for a moment. His only begotten Son. Charles Spurgeon said this, Judge ye fathers how ye love your sons could ye give them die for an enemy? Close quote. There is no greater proof of divine love than that the eternal Father gave the only begotten Son to die for His enemies. For us. There was once a famous story of a family in the East who was reduced to poverty and starvation. And the only possibility as they understood it to preserving their lives was we should sell one of our children into slavery. And so they considered each of their children. They had four sons. Well, who who should we sell? And they said, well, we can't sell our firstborn into slavery. You know, he's the one who's going to get all the inheritance. And so they looked at the second and they said, well, you know, we can't sell our second into slavery because he's the, he's the spitting image of his father, the one his father loves. And we can't sell our third son into slavery because we had such a long wait in between our second and our third. And it was like a miracle when he was born. And we can't sell our fourth because the fourth is such like his mother and his mother is such as her love upon Him. Eventually they came to the conclusion saying it is better for us to die together than to willingly part with any of our children. 
Congregation, do you sympathize with them? The profundity of John 3.16 is that God so loved you that He didn't spare His Son so that He might spare us. And notice that He didn't send His Son into a world to be exalted and glorified. He sent His Son into a world to be exiled. He sent the heir of all things to hunger and to thirst and for poverty and for, with nowhere to lay His head. God sent the Prince of Heaven to be scrutinized by the scribes and the Pharisees. He sent the Son of God to be scourged and crowned with thorns, to be crucified, to have the Father hide His face from Him. Paul says He was made a curse for us. To die for us. Is there ever been a greater demonstration of love than this? The Apostle Paul later comments on Christ coming to earth and he says this in Romans 5. You probably know it. He says God demonstrates. God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. Little children who are here this morning, the Bible describes Jesus as a gift. You know what gifts are, I assume. Maybe some of you have birthdays in the summer or you're looking forward to Christmas already in July. What does I want to ask the little children here a question. What does it require of you to receive those gifts that might be under the Christmas tree? Do you have to do something in order to get that gift? Do you have to pay something in order to get your present from your father or your mother? Oh no, of course not. We passively receive them. We're given them because our parents love us, right? Likewise, Christ, the gift, is given out of love. It is given to us freely, without price, without requirement of some work. It is free, but little children and congregation, be reminded it's free, but it is not cheap. It costs us nothing. But John 3.16 says it costs God everything. Finally, in this incredible verse, let us be reminded of the purpose of God's love. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is that Christ set about rescuing the lost. And as He has gone to rescue the lost, everyone who prior to Christ's coming was destined for eternal destruction but God has offered provision in Jesus Christ. What these words mean, as John Calvin says, is nothing less than that the love of God is the basis for our salvation. That is, according to Christ's love, He reconciles us to God. He came in order to bring us to the light. He came to restore us unto life. 
And it is the jewel of the Bible that makes clear that God's love is not present tense. You are not given God's love because you love. You are not given God's love because you have faith. You are given God's love before the world even began. God has set His love upon you. It's in what we call in Greek the aorist tense. It's completed action. It's something that was done before. God is the one who loved first. As John will later say in his epistle, we love because he first loved us. So, beloved, we're called by God to imitate him, to imitate his love for the world. But you might ask the question a word of application here this morning is how are we to imitate the world when we are called by John later? or imitate God, God's love for the world when John says later in his epistle not to love the world. But look at God's love. Our theme this morning. God doesn't love the world with selfishness. He loves the world with a selfless, costly love. Christians aren't to love the world with a selfish love of participation, but we are also called to love the world in Christ. That is loving the world as God's good creation and love the world as a witness to Christ's love. We want to consider also this morning verse 17, the Son's mission. The Son's mission. Jesus is said in the Gospel of John to be the exact imprint of the Father. So much so that when Jesus is talking to His disciples in John 14, He says to them, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's will. So we need to do away with the notion that the Old Testament God is angry and wants to judge. And Jesus, the New Testament God, has come to save. And is the nice guy. No, Jesus only does the will of His Father, and it is the will of the Father that Jesus would seek and save the lost. So in verse 17, in a way, is sort of like the mission statement of God's heavenly search party. Notice what Christ says. Look what He says He did not come to do. He says He did not come to condemn. See, beloved congregation, as the Jews saw the Messiah coming into this world, He would come to condemn the heathen. That in the day of judgment, it would be punishment for every other nation but not for Israel. They were rebuked for this thought in Amos that many of the Jews thought that entrance into the kingdom of heaven was dependent upon your physical ancestry and if you were not a Jew, you were going to be disregarded by God. Christ says, that's not why I came. And praise be to God that Christ's redemptive purposes are not confined to the Jews. 
But Jesus is saying God's grace is going out into the world. And in Christ's first coming, the reason that He is on earth, the reason that He would embrace human suffering and weakness and endure mockery and shame is His love for lost sinners. Even though men would rebel against Him and mock Him and crucify Him and kill Him, His messianic purpose was not to condemn, but save. Now later in John's Gospel, Jesus will say in John 9, verse 39, He says, I've come for judgment. But He's not coming to condemn. You see, verse 18 will later expand on this, but it says the world is already condemned. He does not come to a neutral world that can take or leave Jesus Christ. He comes to a lost world that will reject Him, that will despise Him. Therefore, the Son's mission is a rescue mission. It's a search party coming to bring salvation to lost and ruined sinners. That's what He did not come to do. He did not come to condemn. But notice what He did do this morning, congregation. He did come to save. R.C. Sproul tells a story. I think he said one time he was, was it pumping gas or something like that, and somebody well-meaning came up to him and asked, are you saved? To which R.C. responds, saved from what? And the man sort of floundered for an answer. See, this term save has become so popular, right? Are you saved? The common question. It's become so popular that in some ways it's lost its meaning. But what does it mean to be saved? To have salvation. You see, the great dilemma of man, as we talked about last Lord's Day evening, is that man has sin. And there is no amount of human ingenuity or human coming that can bring unto us salvation. Jesus just told Nicodemus that, that someone can no more save themselves than they can birth themselves. We are told in the Scriptures that we are in bondage to sin and misery. We are in need of redemption. And redemption evokes the imagery of in the Old Testament marketplace where a family member might buy back another family member from slavery. But Christ has come to redeem, but He does not buy with gold or silver, but He buys with His precious blood. And in so doing, He blots out our transgressions for, our, for His own sake. He incorporates and adopts us into the family of God. He takes holy God in one man and sinful man in the other, and He reconciles us to God. What mankind could not do on their own, God did send His Son to do. That is to save and to redeem. But His benefits keep going. Not only does Christ do a mighty work of saving, but Christ does a mighty work of renewing. He rebirths us by His Spirit. He cleanses us and renews us inwardly. And that's why, beloved, I spent a little few moments 
on John 2 and John 3, what Jesus said, Nicodemus is in great need of. John is saying in his commentary in verse 17, that's what Christ brings. Nicodemus, what you need is Christ. He says to the ruling authority in Israel, Nicodemus, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Nicodemus, you are filthy with sins. You are bent towards them. But what John says in verse 17, yet the Messiah, the One who comes to save, is here in front of you. Because it's Christ's mission to save. It's Christ alone who can change us from the inside out. And beloved, is that not what we just confessed in singing a few moments ago? That He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Is that Christ and salvation not only saves us from death and hell, but He renews and cleanses and gives us a new spirit. You see, congregation, there's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to change our legal standing before God. We cannot change our nature. We cannot make ourselves to be a new creation. Point blank, we can't save ourselves. But Jesus' name literally means in Yahweh there is salvation. He was announced by the angels in Matthew 1. His name shall be Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. His mission is to seek and to save the lost, and salvation can be found in nowhere, no one else, for there is no name under heaven given to mankind by which we can be saved. Dear congregation, if God has declared you innocent in Christ, who has the right to charge us with sin. Satan is the accuser. He will whisper to you every day of your life that you are not worthy of salvation. He will remind you of your sins. But yet Jesus, our Savior, He stands at the right hand of God. And He proclaims to the Father that He has paid it all. The punishment for sins has been poured out upon Christ that He might save sinners. And nothing you can do will ever change that fact. My friends, do you live according to this reality? Doesn't this also teach us about the nature of true religion? To be a Christian... To be truly religious is not a matter of personal knowledge. It's not a matter of ethical behavior or a religious tradition. Instead, Jesus says that true religion has nothing to do with you and your ingenuity, but it has everything to do with the Spirit of God. It is God's Spirit who overwhelms and who transforms and who converts. We need His Spirit. We need His Spirit. Do you desire to know the Lord? To be a Christian? Cry out to His Spirit. 
who can work a new work of regeneration in us. Very quickly, let's look at this final point, verse 18. The individual's response. Notice that it goes, John goes from verse 16 and 17 to talking from the world about the world to in verse 18, he says in the ESV, whoever, or in the New King James, King James Version, he says, he who. The focus goes from the world and now it tightens to the, it tightens to the individual's response. God has set His love upon all tribes and peoples and nations and tongues. But now He's looking at you this morning. You see, there are still two groups of people in this world. Those who believe and those who reject. Whoever believes, says John, whoever believes in Jesus will not be condemned. To be condemned means to be found guilty and liable of punishment. John says that whoever believes upon Christ is not guilty. To trust in Christ is to have your sins removed, that they are no longer held against us. Jesus did what we could not do. When we place our faith in Jesus, He can save us. Our sin and our guilt are washed away and we are declared innocent before Almighty God. Notice also that not condemned is in the present tense, meaning that for the readers of the Gospel of John, right now, to believe upon Christ, your condemnation will be removed. This isn't a future event, but it's our present reality in trusting in Christ. Our sins are no more. But there is, a second, there is a second response to God's truth in Christ. That is unbelief. Whoever does not believe, verse 18, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Yes, Jesus did come to save that you would not perish but have eternal life. But perish and eternal life are contrasted. These are the two responses. And let us be clear this morning, my dear friends. The sad reality is is that we are already condemned and those who reject Christ will spend an eternity in hell. And hell is no joke. Hell is no party. The Bible says hell is a real place of eternal conscious torment. There are only two options, my friends. Either we can embrace Christ as the sacrifice for sins by faith, trusting that He alone can bear the punishment of hell for us, or we can reject Him and pay the punishment in our own bodies, in our own souls. John makes very clear the difference between eternal death and eternal life falling on our knees and trusting in the cross of Christ alone. One final point I want to make out to you is that in John verse 14, I know it's not the focus this morning, he uses an Old Testament illustration to explain the purpose of His coming. 
You see, in Numbers 21, the people had rebelled against God, and God, in judgment, sent snakes, vipers, in order to bite the people as a curse for their sins. And so Moses falls on his knees and begs God for mercy, and the Lord tells Moses to erect a bronze serpent, and that when the people looked upon the serpent, that they would be healed. That anyone who was bitten would live if they looked at it. Likewise, Jesus in John 14 says, if you look unto Me like the bronze serpent, you will find eternal life. There is healing and newness of life and cleansing and rebirth in looking to the cross by faith. Dear congregation, let us be absolutely clear this morning. God loves to save sinners. We need to do away with the idea that God begrudgingly welcomes sinners. It says in Luke 9 that when one sinner comes to faith, all of heaven rejoices. God is calling sinners all throughout the world, come unto Me. Come, come unto Me and receive everlasting life. Receive salvation from sin and death and hell. And this message is the same for us this morning today, isn't it? Come. Come to the Father through Christ. Come, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. God is calling you to come this morning. Make a decision for Jesus Christ. God loves and is desirous to save sinners. That's why He sent His Son. And dear congregation, for those of us who have put their faith and trusted in the Lord, let us be reminded also that the love of God is the most satisfying thing on earth. The love of our spouses will fail. The love of our children will fall short. The love of government, the love of money, the love of possessions, none of these things can satisfy. But the love of God is eternal. It is sweet. It is strong. It is so good. It alone can satisfy our weary souls. So I ask again the question this morning, What is God that He is mindful of man? We do not deserve this love. We didn't earn it. Yet this morning, are we not the recipients of it? We are the recipients of a costly and sacrificial love in Christ. Dear Christian, God has set His love upon you. Yes, in the cross we see God's holiness. We see His hatred for sins. But we also ought to see the costly love and sacrificial love of Christ. We were not on that cross. God's own Son paid the price for our salvation. Amen. Let's pray.
our God in heaven. What is man that you are mindful of him? Though we were created a little lower than the angels, we rebelled against you. Yet you have loved us with an everlasting love. Help us to walk in this. Help us to live in this. May this be the defining characteristic of our lives. Sinners loved by God. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this might be our anthem, our song, all the days. We pray, Father, for anyone among us here this morning who does not know the love of God, who has rejected the love of God, soften their hearts, for we know that You love to save sinners. Lord, win many to Yourself. This day by Your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.